Well, good morning once again. It is good to be with you. Good to share the word of God with you. Go ahead and open your Bibles or your devices to Matthew chapter 25. That's where we're going to be camped out there. Now, I suppose I should explain a couple of things. Dana, thank you for praying, by the way. Um, Yeah, my muscles are a little sore as well as pretty much all of me. Um, I went with Asher. His school had their annual ski trip. And I made the mistake of thinking it'd be a good idea for me to also ski. And uh, <clears throat> I experienced a lot of the trip from my back on the side of the hill. So anyway, uh, so I'm a little sore this morning uh, and feeling a little under the weather as well. So um, just, a, just a cold sort of thing. So anyway, I appreciate the prayers for that. But I thought I might mention why it might sound weird. It's because I'm sucking on a cough drop so that I don't lose my voice during the sermon. Anyway. Uh, As I said, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 25. Before I really get going, I want to say a few words about this series of messages. So during the next month, I'm going to be preaching through a series of messages about God and money. And I very creatively titled the sermon series, God and Money. Because it's about God and money. I know, it's real, real, uh, real smart. Some of you are like, oh, we're talking about money. I will see you in four weeks. Um, But really, what it's about is it's about stewarding the money that we've been entrusted with in a faithful manner. And I'm going to be covering this series in a topical manner. Now, most of you know that normally I preach through books of the Bible, which I believe should be the main preaching diet of the church. However, every now and then there's occasions when the church body needs to hear on specific topics or during specific times. And I personally am really indebted to Capitol Hill Baptist Church for their material on stewardship that was really helpful in me preparing this, uh, this sermon series. The Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth and a lot about how we're supposed to use those things, how we're supposed to look at those things. But after looking at our financial picture as a church and some of the challenges that we've had in the last few years and maybe uh, looking forward, I wanted to take a few weeks and really walk through a biblical view of money. And I think this will help us as a church in four significant ways, as well as uh, all of us individually, in four significant ways. Number one, it reminds us that our money, our wealth, our time, even our skills are not unrelated to our spiritual life. They're not unrelated to it. Number two, it'll help us to put us on the same page as a church with how we view personal finances and giving in relation to our spiritual lives. Number three, it's going to help us because people in churches are vulnerable to idolize and misuse the things that God has so graciously given us. I mean, it's not just people in churches, but it's all of us. Uh, all people, we are, we're susceptible to idolizing the good gifts that God has given us. And number four, it will call us to deeper faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's really my hope in the whole thing is that when we get done, not, boy, pastor, preach a heck of a sermon. My, that's not my goal. My goal is that it will drive you to deeper faith and deeper trust in Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, if we're going to talk rightly about money then we have to begin with the gospel. We have to begin with the true gospel. See, there's a lot of counterfeits out there. And right now, one of the primary counterfeit gospels that's making its way around the world quite, quite in a big way, 
we refer to as the prosperity gospel. Now, if you joined us last Sunday night for the movie American Gospel, Christ Alone, then you heard you heard quite a bit about the false gospel that we refer to as prosperity gospel. Now, see, the prosperity gospel teaches that God rewards faith with material blessings. This is false because it's not based on grace. It ends up looking a bit like a contract where if I do this thing for God, then God will do this other thing for me. Sometimes it looks like us trying to somehow put God in our debt by reminding him of all the things we did for him as if he owes us something. The prosperity gospel teaches, teaches that those people who say and do the right things secure good health and financial blessings from God as their reward. But biblically, biblically, we know that poverty or blessings or bad health or good health are not linked to a person's righteousness. All have sinned, scripture tells us. All have sinned. God is holy. That sin that we all have separates us from a holy God. Something had to die to pay the price for that sin, to restore us in relationship with God. And Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, lived a perfect sinless life and gave it willingly in the place of sinners as a substitute. He bore the wrath that was due our sin, that was due us, freely, and then freely gives us his righteousness, his right standing before God. Freely, okay? We didn't earn it. And he died, and three days later, by the power of God, he rose from the grave. So salvation is not based on our merit. It's not based on our desires or choices. It's based solely on God's amazing grace, on Christ's finished work on the cross. And it is a free gift. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And yet he freely offers it to us. And to those who trust in him, he gives eternal life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to talk about money, we have to start with the true gospel whereby Jesus purchased a people of his own. And if you don't know Jesus, why would you care about what he wants to do with your money? That's why we got to start there. Because if you don't know Jesus, if you never trusted the true gospel, if you're not a truly a Christian, a follower of Christ, then why would you care about what Jesus wants you to do with your money? But if you do know Jesus... If you're submitted to him, then you care very deeply about what he has to say about your money. Now, one word of caution I want to give this morning as we start out with this. So week one is just stewardship, okay? And we'll, we're going to move into f- to further and further things down the line. Some of you are like, I just want to know about giving. That's not going to be till week three, okay? Uh, next week we're going to talk about faithfulness, all right? And then in the last week, we're going to talk about idolatry. But anyway, um, a caution for some of you. Some of you are rule mongers. Now, you wouldn't refer to yourself that way. But some of us are rule mongers. We just want the bottom line. Tell me, pastor, how much should I give? How much should I volunteer? What should I be, how much time should I allow myself on social media? You want a rule to follow you're likely going to be disappointed today because I'm probably not going to give you a lot of rules to follow. See, the Bible, in regards to these aspects of our life, doesn't give us that many hard, fast rules on them. There's a good amount of Christian liberty here. Now, 
that's not to say there aren't any rules, okay? Uh, but there is a good amount of Christian liberty here. Different consciences are going to react to different situations with time, talent, treasure. What scripture does give us, though, are some goals in these aspects of our lives. The Bible shows us how we can use these good gifts that God gives us to show off the worth and excellence of our redeeming God. We get to use these things, whether it be our money, which is mostly what we're going to talk about, but our, our, our time, our talent, our skills, our health, we get to use these things to show off King Jesus. So the question, the question that you should be asking is not, how much money can I keep for myself? Instead, the question we should be asking, asking is, how can I use all of my money and all of my time and all of my talents to pursue Christ as much as possible? See, our finances, our talents, our time, our health, they're all areas of opportunity. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? What do you mean areas of opportunity? Well, Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the, these are opportunities to bring glory to God. They're opportunities to show off Jesus. So really, the aim of this series is to get us to see how we can do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let's begin by reading Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be, will be more given. Excuse me. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Father God, as we come to this time and we look at this parable, I pray you'd help us understand, help our hearts be open to whatever it is you're trying to tell us in this. Help my words be clear as I explain it. Help us understand, help us be quick to come to repentance as you convict us of our sin. Help us take you at your word, Jesus. God, this is about you. It's not about me. I pray you would be big, uh, that you would increase and I would decrease. Just let me be clear and get me out of the way. And you speak to you, the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, as we look at this parable, the first person in this parable that Jesus, uh, Jesus has told this parable, in case you didn't know, this is Jesus talking, telling this parable. The first person I want to look at, though, is the master in this parable. Now, we don't want to assume that everything in Jesus' parables stands for something else like an allegory. We don't want to assume that. But if we want to apply this parable to our lives, then who could we see playing the part of the master? Now, I hope when I ask that, that in your mind, you thought God is the master. I hope that's what you thought. If you didn't, that's okay. But that's what I'm saying. In this parable, as we're applying it to our lives, God is the master. If we're going to have a proper understanding of wealth and money, it has to begin with God and his relationship to creation as master over everything. That relationship is, number one, God owns everything. God owns everything. It's all his. And it's all his to do with what he wants. He's the owner of it all because he created it all. And if he created it all, then he has a claim over everything he created. He owns the patent, we could say. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So God owns it all because God created it all. And here's the thing about that. That means God doesn't owe anyone anything. You can't put God in your debt because God is not a debtor. God doesn't owe to anyone anything. Job 41.11 says, who is, who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth, or excuse me, the whole heaven is mine. So we see God has true outright ownership. So he has the right to do with the wealth of the world anything that he wants to do. At creation, God created stuff and he said something about it. He said it was good, Right? So God created the world, and he said it's good. When God called his creation good, he was assigning value to it. He was assigning value to it. So then sin enters the world, 
Sin entered the world, but it did not destroy the goodness of God's creation. His creation was still good. Sin had entered the world, had marred, marred it, but it was still good. It didn't take away from the goodness of his creation. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5. I know we're throwing a lot of scripture at you here, but it says better things than I can. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Do you know that you can actually bring glory to God by enjoying his creation? I think sometimes we sort of, like, we forget that or we neglect that and we think that, like, God doesn't want us to have a good time ever or something like that, which is not true. We can actually bring glory to God by enjoying the things that he created, obviously, in an appropriate way. But we can bring glory to God by enjoying his creation. 1 Timothy six seventeen, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, what Paul does here, he basically kills the idols of wealth and the idol of poverty with one fell swoop. So we shouldn't idolize wealth and we shouldn't assign some sort of higher spiritual value to being poor either, right? There's some people who say, oh, well, the wealthier talked about, uh, you know, we hear, see them talked about negatively there. So obviously to be more spiritual, we should just be poor. Nope, that's, that's, that's buying into prosperity gospel also, just kind of on the other side of it. Paul kills both of the idols of wealth or riches and poverty in one fell swoop here. We should not idolize either or assume something about the other person's spiritual condition because they have a lot or because they have a little. The secret to managing things God has given is not running from them, but to understand why he has given them in the first place. Which leads us right into the next sub-point here, which is God gives people their wealth. If God owns everything, then God gives to people. And we see that in the parable, right? The master gives as per abilities to these different guys, right? So God gives people their wealth if God owns everything it just logically flows from that that everything that we have comes from him in 1st Corinthians chapter 4 sorry I know it's gross wiping my nose here but 1st Corinthians 4 7 says for who sees anything in excuse me for who sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive If you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The famous King David even recognized this. He recognized that God gave him everything. In order to help build the temple, the Israelites were, they were giving things they personally owned. But David's prayer in response was this, and we find it in 1 Chronicles 29, 16. This is David's prayer in response. O Lord our God, All this abundance that we have provided for building you a house of your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Even as the people were giving stuff, David says, yeah, the stuff we provided, 
It's from God. It's from his holy hand. It's his. In our parable from today, did you notice that the, I mentioned this just a minute ago, the master gave the servants different amounts to manage. First Samuel 2, 7 says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So when we look at that and we see that God gives people different things to manage. The master gave the servants different amounts to look after, to manage, okay? So and when we read this passage in 1 Samuel, what do we understand about how God sees inequality of wealth? Okay, there's a lot of stuff about inequality of wealth and stuff out there. God does not see inequality of wealth as an evil thing in and of itself. He doesn't. He gives to one person differently than he gives to another person. God gives to each as he deems appropriate. The important thing is how we steward what God has given us or manage what God has given us. So that's talking about the master, but let's next talk about the servants in this parable. Man, mankind, us, okay? Probably the hardest thing to wrap our heads and our hearts around is understanding that we don't own what we own, okay? That's probably the most difficult thing that you have to, to, to understand today is this idea that we don't own what we own. That car you just paid off, you don't own that. That education that you got that you paid for, you don't own that. Your house or your kids or your money that's sitting in your bank account or your IRA, it's not really yours. Actually, the stock market this week showed us how much it's not ours. Something about us doesn't like to admit this, though. We bristle at it a little bit when someone suggests that that stuff that you have that you bought, that's not really yours. Maybe some of you felt something rise up inside of you when I said that, when I said it's not yours. See, we say things, we, we, we think things like, well, I earned it, so it's mine. Pastor, you can't tell me what I should do with what is mine. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. If, and, and I'll big if, all caps, okay? If we agree with Scripture then we must admit that those things are not ours, that they're ultimately God's, if we agree with Scripture. And here's the crux of what we have to come to grips with when we talk about money or any other topic, really. Do we trust the Word of God? Because we're given some principles, we're given goals, we're even given some commands, right? The question is, are we going to take God at his word that, hey, people who follow Jesus live like this? Are we going to trust that? Or are we going to bristle up and say, no, I'm not going to do that? This is a huge, huge reason why a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus. In Luke 18, there's a story of the rich young ruler. And this guy comes up to Jesus and has an interaction with Jesus. And he goes away sad and, and goes away as being not a follower of Jesus because he couldn't get past his love of all the stuff he owned that he thought was really his. People like this don't want to submit everything to God's lordship. 
And when you realize the, when you realize the truth in this, that what you have is not yours, it actually lifts a heavy burden from off your shoulders. This is a burden that we were never meant to carry. Uh, in the book Desiring God, the author John Piper gives an illustration about someone who comes into an art museum empty-handed. So guy walks into an art museum, nothing in his hands, right? He walks in, and as they walk into the rooms, uh, as this guy walks in the rooms, he starts taking pictures off the walls and putting them under his arms. That's walking through an art museum like he's in Dollar General or something, right? Putting him under his arms. So he's confronted by the security guards, and they say, what are you doing? Well, he replies to him and says, well, I'm becoming an art collector. But what he's told is that the pictures are not his, and that he won't be able to take them out of the building. The person replies, sure, they're mine. I've got them under my arm. We have to understand that what we have in our possession is not truly ours. You came into the world with nothing, and you will leave with nothing. There's an old saying that goes something like, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Right? There's a, you don't get to take it all with you when you're gone. Because we don't own what we own. Secondly, under talking about servants, is we're only stewards of what we've been given. We aren't debtors, but stewards. There's a difference because we're not trying to pay back a debt, but as stewards, we're obligated to use the assets that we have for the purposes of the master. So we have an obligation to use the assets that we've been entrusted with for the purposes of the one who entrusted those things to us. From creation, from the very beginning, man was put on earth, not just as a creation, but as a creation with a task to be steward of the earth. And if we are stewards and not owners of all the wealth that we've received, then how should that change our view of our bank accounts, our vehicles, our homes, and our other possessions, you know? How, does that, how should that change our view of that? I think it changes it in four main ways. Number one, the stuff we have are not to be used for our sole purpose, but for God's. Our things, if they're really God's entrusted to us, are not to be used for our sole purpose, but for God's. Number two, we will be held accountable for how we use our master's wealth. We'll be held accountable for how we use what was entrusted to us. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And we'll get more into this later, but we'll be held accountable. The master showed back up in the parable, and he called, called them to account. Number three, we must justify how we use all of our wealth, not just what we give to church, but also what we spend on ourselves. We must justify how we use all of our wealth, not just what we give to church, but also what we spend on ourselves. I probably don't think about that enough. I bet you don't either. Number four, getting wealthy isn't an end in itself. 
I've listened to a lot of podcast radio programs, looked at read books on financial principles, financial principles from a Christian view. And there are some of them that whether they mean to or not, seem to put getting wealthy as like the end in itself. But we need to understand that getting wealthy is not an end in itself. So the question that we need to grapple with is what kind of steward are you? Are you a good steward or a poor steward? A poor steward or a good steward? Are you a good manager or a poor manager? So let's first look at poor stewardship. And poor stewardship, and I'm going to expand upon this, but uh, in your notes you might run a right, poor stewardship, evidence of no faith. Poor stewardship, evidence of no faith. That's strong wording, and there's a reason why. See, we see the difference between the master and the servants in the parable, but now I want to look at a distinction between the types of servants in the parable. Okay, We're going to start with the unfaithful servant. What he did was lazy and wicked, right? It said slothful and wicked, right? That makes me want to know what it was that he did and why it was so bad. So what did he do? Well, he hid the money in the ground. So he took the master's money and he put it in the ground and when he got back, he gave the master back his money. Why was this wrong? Two reasons. Number one, he neglected his responsibility. He neglected his responsibility. And number two, he didn't consider his master worthy. Some of us need to stop right there. Because we've treated God in such a way that we have neglected our responsibility as his followers. Because really, truly in our hearts, we don't consider him worthy of our obedience. And that ought to break our hearts and drive us to our knees. It's almost more, uh, yeah. It <laughs> but what was the consequence? What was the consequence for this guy neglecting his responsibility, not considering his master worthy? Buried the money, brings it back, hands it into the master. What was the consequence? He was thrown into the darkness if you read that as into hell, you're right. He was thrown into darkness, into hell. Now, that seems like a mighty stiff consequence for just burying some money, doesn't it? So let's look a little bit more in detail at what the servants did. So the faithful servants did not know that the master would return, but they trusted that he would return. So they went out and they risked absolutely everything on this promise. They held nothing back. But the unfaithful servant, he decided to play it safe and not risk. Now, either he thought the master wouldn't return as he'd promised, or when he did return, that faithfulness would not be rewarded. So he hedged. He decided to hedge his bet and curb his risk. And he did that by burying the talent and spending his time doing something else. What we know 
is that misusing God's wealth is the same as stealing from God. We find out about that in the book of Malachi. I'm not going to go there now for sake of time, but find out in the book of Malachi that, that when we misuse God's wealth, we're actually robbing from God. We're stealing from God. The good servants trusted the master's words and his goodness, but the unfaithful servant had faith in neither the master's word nor the master's goodness. Now, you might think, as this guy did, that you can play both sides of the coin. You might think you can please God and serve money. But in the end, your desire will show your lack of faith in God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's the word of the Lord. You cannot serve God and money. So if you're serving money and that's where your desire is, no matter what else is going on in your life, you're not serving God. If you're living solely for money and the increase of wealth with no desire to serve God, then friend, you're not a Christian. And it's incredibly loving of me to tell you that because it bothers me and worries me for you. So ask yourself, where is your faith? Now, I hope what you're not hearing is you're not hearing that if you struggle in a certain area, you might not be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I mean, it could be, I suppose. But what I'm saying is when we are not living out a submission to God in every area of our life, we are showing, number one, there's definitely something wrong. But if we have no desire for serving God and we're just living to make that money, we're giving it just as this guy did. We're give, the unfaithful servant. We're giving, uh, we're giving evidence that we don't have any faith. That we don't belong. And so that's something that you definitely need to come to grips with. Listen close here. So we learn... We learned from this unfaithful servant what we learned from him is that what you do with your money is an indication of whether or not you have saving faith. Now, I've said this for years, that not just that way, but I've said, let me see your check register if people still use checkbooks, okay? So let me look at your bank account. Please don't. I don't want to see your bank account. But if I were to look at your bank account, I, could, I would discover what is most important to you. Because we spend our money on what is most important to us. Now, I understand most of it is like, well, we, you know, we have to buy food and pay light bills. I get that. This parable has been misunderstood, though. It's been misunderstood as if it was about being a semi-Christian. Like, well, the, the unfaithful servant was a Christian. He just was kind of a bad Christian. Nope. A semi-Christian is not a category, okay? <laughs> being a Christian, it's like being pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. There's not like, hey, a kind of pregnant, okay? All right? Semi-Christian is not a category. This parable is about the difference between heaven and hell. So the question is, where is your faith? This sermon series is not about you being a good steward with some of your money. 
It's not about if you have the, uh, if you have some that's for you and some that you give back to God. It's not about that. It's about spending everything for God. It's trusting everything on his promises being true. It's what it means to be a Christian, trusting God on all of his promises, right? First of all, the promises of the gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on the cross and that Jesus rose and trusting every word of God. See, what we do is we try to compartmentalize our lives, but Jesus either has it all or he doesn't. You don't get to give part of yourself to him. You know him and you serve him or you don't know him and serve him. And it really is that simple. Most of the rest of our time this morning, as well as uh, next week's sermon, though, I want to take a look at what it means to be a faithful steward. We need to cover the unfaithful guy. And I wanted to deal with that up front, especially in case anybody really needs to realize where they're at before moving forward here. For the rest of the few minutes we got left this morning, I want to talk about the faithful steward and faithful stewardship being glorifying to God. And then next week, we're going to talk more about faithfulness. Why were the first two servants called good and faithful? Did you look at that? Were they called good and faithful just because they brought more money back? Were they called good and faithful just, just because the other guy wasn't? Well, no, they got called ahead first, right? Why were they called good and faithful? Four reasons. Number one, they were immediately obedient. They risked it all. They went out with everything they had. They immediately were obedient. We have this saying in my house, delayed obedience is disobedience. They were immediately obedient. Number two, they thought well of their master. They thought well of him. They trusted his word. He will return. And they thought well enough of him to know that something good would happen, possibly. Number three, they were productive and took risks, showed faith. You know, a lot of times in, in, in our Christian walk, now I'm not telling you to go out and be stupid. Please don't hear that. But a lot of times we want to play it as safe as possible and not take any risks. But sometimes if we're going to trust God, you're going to have to risk some stuff. All right? There's people in Ukraine right now risking stuff for the sake of the gospel. And they're risking everything. They're risking everything. Some of us aren't willing to risk 10% of our paycheck. You know? And they're risking their whole lives. Some people, you know... Yeah. Let's go on. Number four. They receive profitable returns. They're called good and faithful because they got, they got a profit back. They got something back for it. Um, I have to remember that as a pastor, you know. I've, I've never... I've never pastored a church where we blew the doors off the place because there were so many people coming to know Jesus. It was usually one at a time, if any. And so I have to kind of think, okay, when I look at this, I thought, well, you're mastering all that, productive, took risks, okay. Receive profitable returns. I don't know if you noticed in the parable, but it didn't much matter that that guy 
that got that had five and got five more. The other guy had two and got two more. They were both welcomed into the joy of the master. They were both called good and faithful because they were faithful with what they had, what was put in front of them, what was entrusted to them. And number five, they were patient to wait until the master returned. They were patient to wait until the master returned. They didn't get tired. Well, at least we don't have a record of them getting tired of working on investing that money. But they were patient until the master returned. Being a faithful steward is using wealth, however much we've been entrusted with, to show off God's goodness. And when I say wealth, I just mean money, okay? Which every one of us in this room is like in the top 10% of wealthiest people in, a, in the world. Um, there's actually a website you can go on. I didn't mean to put this in there, but there's a website called World's Wealthiest, I think, or something like that. And you can enter like your annual income and it will tell you what percentage of the world you are in for, uh, for income. And, and pretty much everybody in this room is in the top like 10% in the world. Some of y'all are probably in the top 3%. Like it's, it's amazing. So when I talk about wealth, just understand, I'm not talking about you being filthy rich, okay? Being a faithful steward, though, is using that wealth, however much we've been entrusted with, to show off God's goodness. And there are two main motivations for why we should do this. Number one, God didn't only tell us to do what to do with our wealth, but in his love, he showed us. He showed us what he did with his. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Love for God marks someone who's been forgiven by Christ. And that love for God will also include a desire to use our money to please him. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And the second motive for being a faithful steward is number two, and this one has uh, judgment written all over it. Number two is Christ will return. In the parable of the master, he returned to settle accounts, and if you've trusted in Christ and repented of your sin, then you will receive an eternal life at judgment day. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will give an account. What we do while we're still on earth has implications for gaining or losing rewards in heaven. I'm not talking about salvation, okay? That was accomplished by Jesus. But does this factor into your daily decision-making? Does the eternal effect of what you do on a daily basis factor into your decision making? We should expect every day to be the day that Christ will return. Will we be found faithful? Are you ready to give an account for what you've done with what he has entrusted you with? As we put a bow on this, as we wrap this up, I want to leave you with three freedoms that we find. Because if you'll put these principles into action in your life as you follow Christ, you're going to discover three pretty specific freedoms along the way. And these are really cool. So we went through all that to get to these really cool freedoms that we find as we 
follow Christ in this way. Uh, as we follow Christ the way he tells us to follow him, we find freedom in that. Okay? And I'm going to actually, as I go through these, I'm going to invite the musicians to kind of start to make their way up. But, but here's three freedoms that we find as we follow Christ in the way he wants to be followed. Number one, it frees us from our circumstances. Okay, if we view money God's way, it frees us from our circumstance. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. If a tree falls on my car, okay, now, that is something that actually did happen to me. <laughs> a tree did once fall on my car, but that's not the story I'm telling, so I'll tell that another time. But if a tree were to fall on your car, but, but you really believe that the money belongs to God, then your stress level goes way down, right? That happens to me. And I really believe that all my money isn't really mine, but it belongs to God, then my stress level goes way down. I might think something like, oh, I guess I didn't need that for God to accomplish his plans for me. It's realizing that God is in control. And he could have put that tree somewhere else. But we trust that he has something better in mind than I did. So when we face a lost job, a stock market crash, a leak in the roof or anything else, we need to trust that those can all be within God's good plan for me. Knowing that God owns everything allows us to be content, whatever our financial circumstances, which, if you were here last week, we talked about at the end of Philippians. That's why it's so important that we understand that what Paul was saying at the end of Philippians is that whether he was in financial need or financial abundance... He could be content because Christ was his strength. So it frees us from our circumstances. Number two, when we view money in this way, in God's way, it frees us from guilt. Frees us from guilt. See, God wants us to enjoy the things he's given us. Sometimes we think that God and things are always opposed to each other, right? I was online looking at, looking at, um, like looking for artwork and stuff for this to see if I could come up with, you know, a better sermon, sermon series title than God and Money, right? And I saw one uh, that I think was even in our presentation that was called God versus Money. And I'm like, but that's not, that's really not what I'm seeing here. See, sometimes we think that God and things are opposed to one another. We assume God's unhappy with us uh, enjoying those things, or we assume God is unhappy with us, say, watching a TV show we enjoy when we could have been doing something better with our time. Well, sure, it may be true that we could have done something better, but God made good gifts for us to enjoy. And when we steward our time, our talent, and our treasure, our money faithfully, we're free from guilt and we can enjoy the good gifts God gives us. So we view money God's way, and we treat money the way God wants us to treat money, then we are free to enjoy the good gifts that he's given us. And the third freedom, it frees us to be generous. When it's all God's money, because it is, and we understand we're just managers of it, stewards of it, entrusted with it, it frees us to be generous. See, the world and Christians see generosity very differently. For the world, it, it's, for the world it's, it, generosity is part of what's mine that I'm willing to part with. But for the Christian, it's the portion of God's that I get to invest in the needs of others. And you certainly bring glory to God by providing for yourself, 
but also by providing for others. When we become true Christians and enter the fellowship of the born again, the tug of war that happens in the heart of a worldly person between those two things is gone. The worldly person feels the tug of wanting to be generous versus, uh, versus the pull of his own selfishness. But once that person comes to an understanding that God is the owner of everything, he's set free to be generous and not worry about it. So as we summarize this, what would you hear this morning? Well, I hope you heard God owns everything and he gives us all that we have to steward in a faithful manner. It's not about amounts and appearances. It's about whether your heart is fully surrendered to Jesus or not. So where are you at, church? Where's your faith? Have you believed the gospels and repented of your sin and trusted Jesus and are trying to follow him? And maybe you're just trying to figure out this money thing. Maybe you didn't know some of this stuff. You didn't know what God wanted from you and your finances. Whatever it is, where are you at? Where are you at? If this is foreign to you, you're like, I don't even understand this whole Christianity thing you're talking about. Um, then, man, I'd love, to, I'd love to talk with you afterwards or set up a time this week to get together. But I, what I don't want is I don't want someone to walk out of here and not understand that wherever you're at with this, wherever you're at, you may have just uncovered, God may have just uncovered a bunch of sin in your heart surrounding your finances. I don't want you to walk out of here and think that's where you have to stay. I want you to know that Jesus died for that sin too. He died for your sin too, all of it, not part of it, all of it. And there's forgiveness and there's a fresh start and there's hope only in Jesus. So will you take him at his word this morning? Would you stand with me and pray? God, I thank you for, um, God, this message, the message of, of how you want us to use our money. And I'm excited to continually, you know, just kind of continue to go down this path over the next few weeks. God, help us understand, help us trust you. And God, where we have, uh, where we have seen you uncover sin in our hearts, help us quickly repent and believe the good news that, that you died for that too, Jesus. God, I, man, I, know there, I know there are people out here who love you, who, who know you, but, but maybe they're out of whack financially with you. And I pray that you would bring them back into line Show them where they're wrong. And, and, and instead of them running away from you, draw them to you, to your heart. God, I thank you. I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for what you've called us to do and to be as a church. Help us be faithful with that, Lord.